Welcome back to the past. This is Dating Ourselves, the podcast that talks everything 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. I'm your host, Adam, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-hosts, Brian and Paul. Hello. Hey, guys. Get your kicks with episode 56. Yeah. Can I hear it with the Mickey voice? With the Mickey voice. <laughs> uh, get your kicks with episode 56. <laughs> 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 what about a Vince McMahon? <laughs> that, that's Adam's specialty. <laughs> we got three impressions. Oh, now. you get your kicks on Route 66. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll remember that for uh, episode 66. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we still got a few to do before then, but, uh, you know, we're making it. We're making it. If you missed our last episode, you should really check it out when the gang and I talked about who wants to be a millionaire. You can find that in all of our past episodes at datingourselvespodcast.com, on iTunes, Google Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. I actually found mine in the thumb drive in my computer. Interesting. Just, just hanging out. Is that all you found on there? Yeah, pretty much. The, the other things weren't, uh, you know, important. Don't need to talk about those. <laughs> <laughs> they were in a special file. <laughs> <laughs> the hidden file. Well, let's get this started this week. I'm going to be leading a discussion on Total Recall. Give those people a air. I'll see you at the party, Victor. <laughs> well, it's Richter, isn't it? It's not Victor. Uh, anyway, um, remember, we're what would it pick... sound like if Mickey Mouse said? <laughs> <laughs> Mickey was not in this movie. <laughs> I'm not letting that die. <laughs> remember, we're gonna pick our next episode's topic at the end of the show. It's gonna be nostalgic combat. Nostalgic combat. That's right. Me with Beanie Babies and Adam with Are You Afraid of the Dark? We're also going to visit our old friend, the Hopper of Imagination, to get another topic for Paul. So, Paul, tell us about Alu... I like Arnold's. He's a, he's a nice Austrian bodybuilder. Not, not Australian, though. <laughs> no. Throw some shrimp on the barbie, am I right? <laughs> eh? That's not a knife. That's a knife. I always <laughs> thought he was Australian when I was a kid, because I didn't know the difference. And I always thought that him and Paul Hogan had very, very different accents and could not figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, they have a really uh, vast difference in uh, linguistics down in Australia. Yeah. It's like the difference between, you know, being from Scotland and being from Wales. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I also thought that Paul Hogan was Hulk Hogan's brother. Um, and I also thought that... Alan Jackson was one of the Jackson Five, so <laughs> <laughs> he was, wasn't he? It was Alan Jackson and uh, Randy Jackson and right, right, <laughs> Travis Jackson, <laughs> yeah. Jackson Brown uh, too. He just did it backwards for some uh, reason. <laughs> yeah. Anybody named Jackson is automatically in the Jackson Five. <laughs> it was much more than five members. It's like the Big Ten having way more than ten teams. <laughs> so back to total recall. <laughs> That's what's gonna happen to this show. <laughs> total recall. Get it? So Total Recall is a nineteen ninety science fiction movie. I highly recommend it if you haven't seen it for several reasons. But if for none other, it is based on a short story by Philip K. Dick. Oh, uh, really? If you're unfamiliar with Philip K. Dick, you're probably more familiar with his, the adaptations of his work than you know. Uh, he wrote a plethora of short stories uh, in the mostly in the like mid 50s, early 60s. And they've been adapted into movies like Blade Runner, The Imposter, Paycheck, uh, Minority Report. I really thought you were going to say The Impossibles for a second. <laughs> I was like, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> uh, Scanner Darkly, if you've seen the Richard Linkletter movie. Uh, oh, yeah. It, it's really amazing uh, how many of his short stories have been adapted. Uh, there's a great collection of short stories called Electric Dreams. And my favorite story from that is Do Androids Dream of Electronic Sheep, which is the story that Blade Runner is based on. 
Huh. And most of these were short stories, so you're talking like 130 pages. They're quick reads. I highly recommend that you go check them out. Uh, if for nothing else, and the only reason that I wanted to pause and think about this is when you look at all of the technological advances in his stories, I mean, he was like dreaming way beyond uh, his time period of which he was writing these things to talk about yeah. androids and, you know, TV walls and space travel and right. so many of those things, you know, not necessarily the technology itself, but the concept and the science behind it. He nailed a hundred percent. And mm -hmm. to me, that's as cool to think about as just enjoying the stories he wrote. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's always really interesting when you see those writers who wrote, you know, 50, 60 years ago at this point, and they were really able to kind of predict or at least kind of, uh, kind of drive what technology has been created since then. <laughs> right. Right. Well, speaking of authors, um, so my brother's middle name is Michael. And there is an author that has almost exactly my brother's name, except the middle name instead of Michael is like Michel, like the the French version of Michael. And this author oh, okay. is a um, a homoerotic uh, author with a lot of uh, topics on, you know, prison rape fantasies, and Jeez. apparently. My brother went to an interview uh, a few months ago, and <laughs> the interviewer asked him, I'm assuming they must have Googled his name, like, did you mean this person? Like, you wouldn't happen to be this person, would you? Uh, no, why? Who is that person? Um, well. <laughs> I mean, I've written under the pseudonym Chuck Tingle, but, you know. <laughs> oh, Apparently, people are, are into um, Rule 34, That's as they say. If it exists, yeah, there's that's porn really of it. That's really unfortunate so. to be similarly named to someone like that. Like, it would be, like, kind of similar to, like, if your name was, like, Kevorkian or uh, right. McVeigh or something like that, where they look it up and it's like, oh, boy, uh, this, this isn't you, right? <laughs> hey, at least that person is successful in some fashion. That's right. <laughs> That's it for me, guys. I'm done. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. I wish I could be more like Charles Mancy. You know, he had a family, you know? <laughs> Too soon. Too soon. Anyway, moving on to something actually quite similar. Uh, this movie was directed by Paul Verhoeven. Who? Oh nice. yes! Oh yes! So I, the Paul Verhoeven, the Paul Verhoeven of RoboCop and Starship Troopers fame. Yes. Um, you ever which noticed? made so much sense when I found that out because oh, I was yeah. like, yeah. man, this movie is beyond violent. Like the only movie I can think of that's as violent as this is Robo. Oh wait, it is. It's the same director. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> got it. <laughs> I, uh, I actually um, watched the movie earlier today to refresh my memory because it had been a while and while i was doing that i was also looking up some of the imdb trivia and stuff like that learning some of the behind the scenes stuff and looking at and some of that did... other stuff on your flash drive too right <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but they uh they were saying that this movie actually almost got like an at the time it, it was x rating now it would be like the c17 yeah yeah, because of how violent it was. Really makes sense. Like, for that time period, this was very over-the-top violent. So most Paul Verhoeven movies uh, start out that way. RoboCop received an X rating uh, for its debut, yeah. uh, which means that I saw an X-rated movie in theaters with my parents. But moving on! <laughs> um yeah, he's, he's got a very distinct style. He relies heavily on practical effects. And you ever notice all of his movies have the same sort of like lighting filter where it's when you're watching it, it looks almost like it's tape, 
but then the colors are very vivid. I don't know quite how to describe it. I wish I I wish Bill was here to give a little more input part, but you can tell just by looking at a frame that it's a Paul Verhoeven movie and right. he oh, relies absolutely. heavily yeah. on forced perspective and actual like practical effect painted backgrounds. Which in this movie, which is about a, you know, a trip to Mars is an actual, an absolutely beautiful way to do it. Cause you have these big roving landscapes of the mountains on Mars. That's just right. all very red and dust. And you can totally mm-hmm. tell that it's a painting in the background, but for some reason it just looks really cool and it fits mm-hmm. in with the campiness of this movie. I'd say stylistically, it gives it kind of a, a neat look for yeah. sure. Well, and that's uh, one thing that I uh, I just not too long ago was actually watching a short little thing. I think it might have been on, like, uh, Sunday morning, uh, like, you know, the CBS Sunday morning or something like that. They were actually doing a thing on the art of the painted backdrops that they used to use in films and stuff. Not the art and of the deal, said, though? No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they've said... That, like, there are movies even today that still use those because of how good they are at filling in a background and making it exactly what you want, but still being realistic looking and being able to, like, light it the way you need to to make it look realistic. Sure. The, sure. It, it's really, like, an impressive art. And uh, the the whole story was talking about how there's all of these uh, old backdrops that they found from old movies that were just sitting in a warehouse and now they're trying to get them to museums and stuff so people can see, like, the art that that truly is. I'd like to be the guy that has the credit for painting the backdrops in Star Wars, even though most of them were just black. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be the right shade of black, you know? (laughs) That would look really impressive on a resume. Yeah, I uh, painted the backdrops for Star Wars. (laughs) <laughs> wow! I, I painted outer space for Star Wars. Wasn't that just like a bunch of black with just a little white specks every once in a while? Yeah, for <laughs> Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> this was not Leprechaun Four in space. Come on, this was Star Wars. <laughs> I launched Harrison Ford's career. Now kiss the ring. <laughs> <laughs> if it weren't for me, he'd still be a carpenter. <laughs> now, if this was a Stanley Kubrick film. They would have actually went to Mars to film it. So that is true. <laughs> this is very true. All filmed from helicopters. <laughs> so that reminded me of a, a thing I saw online before, where uh, you know, obviously, there's the uh, conspiracy theory that the moon landing was faked and stuff. And there was one I saw before where it was like, yes, the moon landing was faked. Uh, it was directed by Stanley Kubrick. But he's such a perfectionist that he actually flew them to the On-site filming, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. On location, he, yeah. He flew them to the moon <laughs> to be able to fake the moon landing. <laughs> but um, with, like, Paul Verhoeven, I, I would compare his practical effect use to, like, Clive Barker. But the yeah. but the aesthetic, like the actual filter, like colors and things are very, very different. He uses a lot of silvers and light blues and, and very like it I call it Paul Verhoven red. I don't it's yeah. like the blood the blood color and blood effects, it's like a bright color, but for some reason in the way he shoots it, it seems tangible in this universe. Right. Uh-huh. It's almost like that red orange. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and a lot of like the buildings and things like that are like a lot of just different shades of grays and blues and sometimes like some light greens and stuff like it's very in not, I don't want to say industrial, but kind of like uh, I don't even know what you would call that particular type of aesthetic, like very modern, but not like contemporary modern, like a very clean. Um, it almost reminds me of how Tomorrowland depicts the future at Disney World. <laughs> That's mostly purples and stuff, but it's kind of the same aesthetic. Like, it, it, everything looks like it's based in the future, even if it's supposed to be present day. Yeah, um, right. So, um, you ever... Uh, the last Paul Verhoeven point that I want to bring up, you ever notice how someone who comes from a neutral country like Sweden can be very violent in art? Yes. <laughs> I did not until you mentioned that. <laughs> when you think about it, think of like uh, Swedish metal, 
uh, yeah. Swedish movies. And just in general, like, do you think that's uh, some sort of projection? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's a common thread that I've noticed over my lifetime. And uh, Paul finding out that Paul Verhoeven was from Sweden was the least surprising fact about doing research for this episode. (laughs) (laughs) So another common fact about this movie, as far as the cast goes, um, is this is the first movie that I can recall in which Arnold Schwarzenegger finally learned to speak English. Yeah. And lots of F-bombs in that English. I'm, there are lots of yeah. F-bombs in it's that very English. close to German, I suppose. So, <laughs> But if you look at, if you look at, you know, Commando, Conan the Barbarian, and um, even Predator and other movie roles leading up to this, it wasn't that he couldn't speak English, but he hadn't quite divorced himself from... I don't want to say the accent because he definitely has a very heavy accent, but his enunciation, it just, it was, you could, he, in his older movies, you could tell he was in English as a second language person. Whereas this is the first movie to me in which his, his acting and his line delivery actually felt natural for lack of a better term. You guys get what I'm trying to say? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just curious if you guys picked up on that too, or is it just me again? <laughs> no, yeah, because that, I mean, from there on, you can, like you said, you can still tell he has the accent, like true lies and all that. Like, you can definitely understand him better because he's, he doesn't have as thick of an accent that's making it hard for him to, like, deliver the lines and stuff. Yeah. It's like he got more comfortable with it and was able to speak a little bit more clearly yeah yeah i guess i'd i'd have to sit down with an actual like timeline of of his filmography to really be able to tell but i think that that's probably probably true um but yeah that makes that makes sense you got conan let's just go through some quick memorable lines you got conan the barbarian there's can you think of any memorable lines from that movie? Because I can think of some I'm, grunts. I can think of some follow me. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I, I don't remember seeing it, but from what I've heard, it's a pretty limited script on his behalf. And then, uh, so let's jump to Predator, and I might be going slightly out of uh, chronological order, but you son of a bitch! <laughs> you know, it's it, when you think with, with of that the, line, uh, there's it just doesn't seem quite right for the U.S. Special Forces. No, no. <laughs> with the epic, uh, the, oh, the wasn't that where the they bicep did like close the, up of the handshake yeah, the or whatever bicep close up with the handshake. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's why I picked that line. The, the most awkward scene, probably of any. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, movie I was gonna say, I don't know of any movie because there is a volleyball montage in Top Gun, but <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is true. Where they are wearing jeans and basically nothing else, except for Goose. He's like fully dressed. <laughs> He's got like true. sleeves uh, and everything. Je- <laughs> Poor Goose. <laughs> jeans, jeans and aviators, uh, except for Goose, of course. Yeah, who's wearing who's wearing a parka and yeah. He's like that. Boots. He's like that one kid at the pool that wears his t-shirt in yeah (laughs) (laughs) so following chronological then you have commando get to the chopper get down get in the chopper exactly (laughs) i feel like we should use that somewhere yeah yeah Yeah. i feel like it could be put somewhere (laughs) and then you finally have this with the classic give those people air Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh man yes he is uh he is a man of many catchphrases. Indeed. It's not a Tuma. <laughs> <laughs> that was slightly after this one. See, he gets more believable as he goes. That's right. That's right. Sure. Yeah, anyway. He didn't have a lot of comedy under his belt at that point. So <laughs> No. And the real question is, is, was that him trying to be comedic or was that just him delivering the lines to the best of his ability? And the director was just like... This might work. <laughs> like like basically Leslie Nielsen, where he just was like a straight character, but delivered ridiculous lines to make it funny. Yes. Yeah. I, I, probably fair. <laughs> to assume that. But anyway, back to the movie itself. 
So yep. the general plot line of Total Recall is um, Arnold Schwarzenegger plays a normal everyday man construction worker by the name of Quaid. And I want to say it's Dennis Quaid, but Doug, Doug Quaid. Doug. I knew yeah, it was a D. It's definitely Doug. not Dennis Quaid. <laughs> yeah, but you can see why Dennis one would Quaid's... stick in my head, but not the other. Because they just call him yes. Quaid throughout 90% of the movie. Right. Yes. Uh, Doug Quaid is a normal everyday man construction worker who has very vivid nightmares every night of another life that usually involves Mars and a female that he vividly remembers but can't identify. Doesn't know a name or anything. Sounds like uh, scenes from a memory. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Dream Theater reference. Woo! Woo Woohoo! Oh, I I do have to say, I think we need to talk about the first time he has one of these dreams. It is the opening scene of the movie, and he is in a spacesuit with this mystery woman, and they're walking on what you'll later uh, find out is called the Pyramid uh, on, on Mars, and he takes a step, and the ground kind of breaks from underneath him, and he goes flying, and in one of the most ridiculous-looking effects, his uh, face mask smashes into a rock. He starts to choke to death because there's no atmosphere on Mars. And his like whole face starts getting bigger, and his eyes start bulging out of his head, and his face turns like redder and redder. It was so crazy to see that. like Because, again, it's a practical effect. It wasn't like they were doing like massive amounts of cgi and stuff for this yeah this was two years before terminator 2 which i think would be for me jurassic park and terminator 2 which both came out in between 92 93 that's really for me when cgi kind of cemented itself as a primary player in a film sure yeah where an actual character was cgi and was believable in the you know Mm -hmm. in the film yeah. Yep. And this was bef- this was, you know, just a tad before that, but to be honest, for the campiness of this movie and what they were going for, it worked. And that whole head bulging thing is super creepy. And think about yeah. the hours and hours of makeup and I'm sure they had to like time lapse shoot that and he had oh, to yeah. you know, pretend mm-hmm. like he was choking and they probably had to record the audio separately. Well, and either that, either that, or they must have had some type of like way to inflate it or something from behind. I don't know how you would have done it. Yeah, um, I would love they to had know something that. Kind if of- it was, I was, I actually was trying to find that when I was looking on IMDb. That's actually what I was looking for is to see how they went about those visual effects because it's not the only time in the movie that that effect is used. And so I was really curious as to how they did that because it was really. For being very obviously fake uh, looking now, uh, because of how far graphics and stuff have become, uh, it was really seamless. It was really hard to tell, like right. when cuts would have been made to splice this together. It wasn't like the uh, the old Universal Wolfman movies where it's like <laughs> patch of hair, more patches of hair, full face of hair. Yeah, where yeah. it's like a like a still frame, and then they add more and more with just like some noises over it. Yeah, it, yeah. No, he he's moving. He's making these choking noises, which I'm assuming were probably ADR, um, and. Uh, they were actually uh, yeah, uh, they were actually DDR'd, actually. Ooh. So yeah. A bunch of dance dance revolution. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the sound he makes when he's exercising. So <laughs> But I'm I'm glad you brought this up because it's a perfect point uh to bring there this is for me, this is one of those like this would be in my top five best bad movies of all time because the movie itself is very campy and very over the top as most Arnold movies are. But there was an insane amount of effort that went into it. And I think that comes through through the cast's delivery, through the practical effects. I mean, everybody was on their A game. Like, I think everybody knew what this movie was and they had a clear vision and they executed it perfectly mm-hmm. absolutely so back in our timeline so uh quaid sees a tv commercial for a company called recall and uh what recall thank goodness does- it wasn't a car company right <laughs> <laughs> 
So Recall sells implanted memories. Can't afford a vacation? Well, for half the price, we'll give you all the perfect memories of a two-week package. And until I watched this movie again recently, I never realized that Recall was spelled with a K. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I think they only oh, showed it on screen either. like yeah. once. So it's hard to tell, but yeah, it's R-E-K-A-L-L. And when I went and looked, so when I looked this up, the short story that this is based on is actually all about that company and has several different, like, um, patrons of it that have issues or have weird going ons after they're, at, you know, as, um, they get memories implanted. And the uh, name of the story is We Can Remember It For You Wholesale. <laughs> which I thought was kind of cool. And yeah. apparently uh, a couple of years ago, there was a Canadian TV series called Total Recall 2070. Um, it was 22 episodes. It was a one season anthology show that was just all about this recall place and the different people that came in looking to make memories, which I thought was kind of cool. Oh, that is pretty interesting. So. Quaid, uh, despite his friends and his wife uh, telling him it's a bad idea and that Recall is a bunch of hacks and, you know, they lobotomized my neighbor, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they decide to he decides to go in there anyway and just talk through him because he kind of dreams of doing more with his life. And his wife discourages him and he decides that, you know, maybe an implanted vacation will be just what he needs to take the edge off. And when he goes there, uh, they offer him a great deal if you act now, save 20%, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and he opts for a Mars, he opts for a two week Mars vacation package, full set of memories. And, uh, when he's going through the packages, they're like, Hey, you know, you don't have to be you when you go on vacation. You can be anybody you want. And he's looking through their supposed mem, um, menu of memories. And he gets, uh, he comes across, ooh, secret agent. That right. could be fun. And he picks the <laughs> two week secret agent package, which the owner of Recall tells him that you can go to Mars, have your two week vacation, say, and save the world and make it all the way back to Earth and get the girl and still go into work tomorrow. And, <laughs> you know, who wouldn't find that appealing? Right. Yeah. Get to live out some cool fantasy. <laughs> yeah. I think Bill Paxton would have been all about that. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> In a different Arnold movie, but... <laughs> or, or Dennis Quaid. <laughs> True. <laughs> and I promise I'm not going to go through the movie scene by scene, but this is kind of pivotal to the plot, which is why I'm going more detail or in more detail over the recall. So things go haywire when they go to implant the memory. Um, and he starts having... I'm trying to remember what they call it. They called it some sort of embolism. And uh, they uh, said it was a, like a schizoid or schizophrenic embolism, I think. Gotcha. Whoa, that would be crazy. Yeah, because I definitely remember the like, I, I know for sure they said something about schizo or schizophrenic or something. Yeah. So they start implanting the memory and then someone says he has a memory cap, but they don't explain that. But they give you the impression that someone has messed around in his head before. And this mm -hmm. sets off a trigger of events where he starts having a seizure. They just dump him in a cab and, you know, gives everybody $50 to say they never heard of him. What's kind of important and about that scene, too, when he's having this episode, he's screaming at them about stuff that was part of the secret agent memory that they were going to implant in him. Like, he was, uh, like, yelling something about, like, my cover was blown yada yada and stuff like that and the guy who's uh in control of recall like the head of recall comes in and the lady says something about it and he goes well of course he is that's the memory you implanted and, uh, the girl goes we haven't implanted it yet so they never implanted the memory but he was yelling about being a secret agent and his cover being blown and stuff so it was like oh okay here's something interesting yes jeez so from this point on, all of a sudden, quote unquote, agents start coming after him and trying to kill him. And in the process of this, his life gets turned upside down and he realizes his best friends and even his wife are just there to spy on him. And this sets him on a journey where he's delivered a video recording of himself with a completely different personality, better hairstyle and better voice. 
uh, <laughs> that tells him that he needs to go to Mar, or that he was a secret agent. His cover's been blown. Everything he needs is in this kit, and you need to make your way to Mars and talk to this person. And that sets off the whole rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, one person I think that's important to point out is in this, you've mentioned his wife several times. You guys know who plays the wife? I don't. That's Sharon Stone. Is it Sharon really? Stone? Really? Yeah. And apparently this movie was really important for her career because, uh, as we know, uh, the movie that really launched her career into, like, star level was Basic Instinct. Which, which is another Verhoeven movie. Yep. And that came out a few years after this. And he picked her to be the female lead in that movie because of this movie, because he saw her being able to play this very, like, meek and timid and uh, likable woman, but then very quickly, like, flip a switch and she can be very, like, devious and maniacal right, and stuff. Right, right. Because she, she's actually the one, uh, in, like, as a plot device, uh, tells uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's character that everything he remembers about their wedding, their marriage, and stuff like that was all memories implanted in his brain uh, so that she could spy on him. So... She goes from, like, in that scene where that happens, she goes from this very nice, uh, like, loving wife to this very aggressive and, and very uh, forceful woman. And it was really interesting to see her make those changes that quickly. Right. Yeah, it's very, so, very, very yeah, like, I mean, intense. The- almost like a juxtaposition. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and her character uh, was supposed to be, I think, like, uh, they don't. I don't know if they ever really describe uh, her background or anything, but it seems like she had like a very militaristic or um, spy like or martial... <laughs> yeah, like spy or martial arts background or something, because she's a very strong female character in the movie, and even later you get to see her in action, and she's very good at like fighting and martial arts and stuff like that, so uh, yeah, her character is very interesting, even though they don't go into a lot of detail about who she is and how she got involved in all this. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, Q uh, Richter, who is the head of the goon squad in this movie, who's taking all the red shirts to face Quaid. Uh, Richter, <laughs> you got, you got to give this guy a hand, you know, you really do. <laughs> Maybe two. <laughs> Richter is played by Michael Ironsides and he was filming this movie the same time as he was filming uh, Highlander two. Really? Wow. Yep. One of these is not like the other. <laughs> but somehow it kind of is. Yeah. Because when we talked about Highlander 2, we were like, it was like someone really wanted to make a sequel to Blade Runner, but then they yeah. got handed the script for Highlander, and they just sort of mixed them together. And this movie kind of has that same world vibe. Not right. saying that they have any other similarities, but the universe feels kind of the same. Yeah, you have a dystopian yes. future world. Yeah. Yes. So... Q Mars, uh, Quaid makes his way to Mars and visits his hotel room, finds, you know, the secret message left at the front desk for him that, you know, leads him to the mysterious woman. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Mars for a minute. So Mars is very much a rich, poor class system. Um, uh-huh. You have the corporations that control everything down to who gets what level of error. Uh, the main yep. uh, economy of Mars is based mostly on mining, which is, of course, staffed by mutants and immigrants. Somewhere around this time frame, they bring up the fact that they discovered alien artifacts on Mars and nobody bats an eye like, oh, yeah, that's that was left here by the aliens before we got here. <laughs> and that's not like a huge deal to them. It's just like, oh, OK, so there's aliens in this movie, too. Got it. As well as uh, they have uh, telekinetic mutants who can, you know, read your mind, predict the future, and they're all shapes and sizes. Some are obvious disfigurements, some are uh, conjoined twins, you know, six-handed people with five children that drive cabs. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, four or five, depending on what part of the film you're in. Exactly. (laughs) 
So it's a story you've seen a million different ways presented in the most sci-fi leprechaun four way possible. (laughs) (laughs) That's a perfect way to describe that. (laughs) Yeah. There's some really cool uh, scenes in it. Like uh, one scene that I wanted to talk about uh, for practical effects was really, really cool. Even for today's standards, it seemed pretty interesting. Uh, so there's a scene shortly after that whole part that Paul was talking about where he gets the message from himself saying he's got to go to Mars. Well, obviously, from what happened prior in the film, he's got, like, a basically travel ban on him, so he's got to figure out a way to sneak himself in. So there's a scene where they show the airport, and they focus on this older woman, kind of a little bigger woman, that's uh, going through the airport in she hands the passport the guy goes how long are you going to mars for and she goes oh two weeks and then as this is happening uh richter and uh his goons walk by and you can see uh this woman kind of give him the side eye as they're going by and stuff and then i forget what the guy asked her after that but she responds two weeks again and then all of a sudden she kind of has this meltdown where she starts freaking out and she says two weeks Two weeks! Two weeks! And then you see her grab, like, inside of her mouth and start pulling her mouth and stuff. It's, like, really jarring at first. Oh, yeah. And then all of a sudden, her hair falls off, and her face gets kind of this weird look. And then all of a sudden, her head opens up, basically like metal slats, and opens up to reveal Arnold's head under it. And then the whole thing, like, goes up above his head forms back together and then he grabs it and holds on to it and stuff so it's like oh it's this big disguise and stuff and then he says something and then he throws it to the people and then this head that he just threw goes have i got a surprise for you and then explodes at like a bomb but man for being a practical effect that was really impressive how intricate that whole thing was oh absolutely and like i said like that even in the in the dialogue and the lines it's like they knew exactly how campy they wanted to make it and yep, they were yep, 100% yep. behind the execution and i can yep. think of no better person to be uh the bad guy in that type of environment than michael ironsides the man oh, is yeah. the ultimate grade A asshole. I mean, I don't know who would win in a fight, him or Red Foreman. Like, <laughs> <laughs> man, I want to see that now. Which is funny is I can't think of the name of the actor that played Red Foreman, but he was in uh, RoboCop. He was the main henchman in that movie. Yes, uh, Kurtwood Smith. Yes, that's it. Yep, yep. So yeah, I mean that that scene was really impressive. Um, and there were several other scenes where they did some really cool practical effects uh, with as well. You know, like I said a couple times, they do the, the eye bulging scene. Uh, there was also, uh, Paul mentioned the uh, six fingered taxi cab driver. There's a really cool scene where they, uh, him and you eventually figure out uh, in the movie that the mysterious woman from the dreams he was having was a uh, girl from a club that he had gone to, and she was a resistance fighter. So they go at one point to meet up with the resistance to uh, meet, is, is it, uh, what? Quattro. Quattro? Quattro. Quattro, Quattro yeah, Quattro, who is like the, the resistance leader. And that's actually another practical effect that we'll talk about in just a second because that was really cool. But uh, they uh, get to this uh like tunnel and then the resistance fighters meet him and stuff and they uh look at the cab driver and they're like who's this guy and he goes uh don't worry i'm uh with you guys or something and you see him like kind of undo his hand like it's uh locked into place right and he uh undoes his hand and then all of a sudden this huge alien arm comes out from under it yeah, and he just kind of like wiggles weird, his like, fingers. Like, prong things on it. It's really, yeah. really weird. Yeah, but the way they shot that was really cool because it looked so natural. Like, it didn't look like it was, fa- you know, forced or 
anything like that. It looks like, you know, however they did that, I'm assuming it was probably, like, forced perspective, like, it was behind him, and then they just had it uh, go out and go back in or whatever, but the way they did it, it looks so natural for being a movie that was filmed in 1990, or released in 1990. Yeah, I think another interesting practical effect, I can't believe we haven't talked about this scene yet, is the the three boobs. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, was, I was getting there. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. I, I won't interrupt. So it's, uh, as Adam touched on a little bit, the main conflict on Mars is you have the totalitarian, like, corporation side of Mars, and then you have the resistance, which is led mostly by the mutants, and they allude to possibly aliens, Mm -hmm. um, make up the poorer classes on Mars, and the police are owned by the corporations, and it's several times throughout the movie even on live tv the police will just come in and shoot anyone during a disturbance light up the place and then just move on like nothing happened and that's the general feel you get is the day-to-day on mars Mm -hmm. and in quaid's journey when he finally finds his mystery woman he discovers that um she is a woman of the night and most of the base of operations for the resistance is out of a uh what's the politically correct term a brothel brothel there we go thank you see i i wanted to say the other word (laughs) (laughs) actually i wanted to hear mickey mouse say the other word but i'm not (laughs) no 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 Anyway, so at this brothel, there are um, several other scenes where they uh, they have minor characters that are other service workers. We'll go with that. And uh, <laughs> one of them just happens to have three breasts. And uh, eight-year-old me wore out that VHS tape. Oh, God. There is a permanent tracking line. (laughs) Now, what I find really interesting, and I think the exception to this is HBO, but I think in general, movies from like the 80s and 90s had way more nudity, way more violence, um, and... I don't know, potentially way more vulgarity, although that's debatable. There's a lot more, like, there was a lot more just saying swear words. Vulgarity for the sake of vulgarity, as opposed to character development. I think a lot of it, too, like, at this point, you know, this is past it, but uh, a lot of it, too, had to do with the fact that uh, prior to Indiana Jones and the temple of doom i think it was uh there was no s- such thing as pg-13 right it was just basically uh g pg or r and so they got away with a lot of stuff in the pg that they wouldn't have been able to get away with in a pg movie you know after the fact right but right. it was like there there was so much more lax uh categories of uh you know how they rated the films back then it's you know there it it was a lot easier to get a lower rating with higher vulgarity and and i think a lot of the way that they do violence nowadays in movies is different too because i i think for sure people are kind of of the mindset that the less you see like there's nothing you're ever going to put on screen that's ever going to be worse than what your mind can come up with. Um, yeah. And I think that's kind of the mentality now where like in this movie, you know, there's the scene where there's the elevator shaft. And I, I want to say it's Richter or one of his henchmen. It's Richter. Yep, loses yep. both arms between floors, um, yeah. you know, and that's something that's like very bloody, very graphic that, you know, if it was filmed today, you know, you would see like there's barely any space between his arms, the elevator shaft and the elevator car. And then you'd hear like a crunch sound and it'd be like looking at Arnold's face and he'd be like, Ugh, like, like making, making <laughs> yeah. a grossed out face. Like they wouldn't actually show it. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it's really interesting how, how that's changed over time. Cause I don't and know. I think some of that too is Paul Verhoeven though. Cause Paul Verhoeven is very much show you the violence. Sure. Well, sure. I mean, think of uh, which uh, was it RoboCop two when they had that scene where he just shot the uh, 
for lack of a better term, genitals off of all of the bad guys. That was the first movie. Oh, was it the first one? Okay. Yep. Your move, creep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's about as gratuitous as it gets for violence. Well, think of ED-209 and RoboCop 2. That was the big police officer robot that yeah. uh, they were doing the demonstration at the corporate office. And he goes, okay, use your gun and threaten a man. Now pointed at ED-209. And the robot's like, uh, drop your weapon. You have 20 seconds to comply. And he does. The robot malfunctions and then just lays waste into him with like, you know, 70 caliber cannons or whatever. <laughs> and literally shoots him for a solid 45 seconds as they're scrambling to pull the power on this robot. And then as they do, it shoots him two more times. <laughs> Kind of reminds me of that scene in that Bruce Willis film, The Jackal, yes. where he plays the assassin. And there's a scene where he meets up with an arms dealer who's trying to get him a remote-controlled sniper rifle. With, uh, for... That's Jack Black, isn't it? And it's, yeah, yes. Jack Black is the arms dealer. And he's uh, I like that you use the expression arms dealer, arms by dealer. the way. <laughs> yes. We'll get to that yeah. in a second, I'm sure. But <laughs> uh, So... In the in the scene, uh, Jack Black brings Bruce Willis this big, I mean, huge sniper rifle, and Willis is testing it out and stuff, and he's like, the sight's off, it's shooting slightly off. And he's like, no, man, it's perfect. He's like, all right, if, if you think it's perfect, run, and he starts shooting at him, uh, and it misses him and stuff like that, and finally, Jack Black's like way out on this field. You hear Bruce Willis yell, all right. You got a pack of smokes on you? And he's like, yeah. He's He goes, uh, take it out of your pocket, hold it out, like, away from your body, and we'll test it. So you see him line up uh, the remote control sights, and he lines it up right on the cigarette pack, and you can see Jack Black's character kind of freaking out and stuff. And he goes, all right, I'm going to test it. And he shoots it, and you hear this big explosion and then all of a sudden, Jack Black's just got this horrified look on his face, and he's looking over. All of a sudden, it pulls back, and everything from his elbow down is just gone. Because the sight hit him right in the elbow and blew his arm off. <laughs> so, that's the joke that Paul and Brian were referring to about the arm stealer. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Total Recall. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we got sidetracked a lot. <laughs> yeah, we did. Yeah. So I'm torn here, and I'm going to leave this a little bit in your direction. I was planning on talking about some more memorable moments, although we've covered a few, but we have missed some iconic ones. I'm trying really hard not to give away the ending. Or I shouldn't say the ending. I'm trying really hard not to give away the plot twist of the movie. Should we inspire someone to go see it? Sure. I agree. That's fair. I agree. Um but, but I think we've kind of set the scene because we've told you what the movie's about and I'm sure you can assume how it ends, but we haven't, uh, we haven't given away any of the twists and turns yet per se. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So as far as memorable moments, the one that comes to mind is there's a great scene in which, um, I can't remember. So Richter's the head or Richter's the head of security, but what's the actual like CEO's name? Um, it's, uh, Copenhagen, Cohagen, Cohagen, Cohagen. I keep wanting yeah. to say Copenhagen and that's a whole, <laughs> I could go for it's some Copenhagen, but anyway, <laughs> I could go for some Danish. <laughs> it's kind of related. <laughs> Um, Cohagen, uh, controls the air supply and he's trying to get, um, Quaid to turn himself in. So he shuts off air supply to the, um, brothel and, uh, in an effort to force his hand and he forces Quaid to watch it on a monitor while the air is being sucked out of the room and the people are suffocating and Arnold in the most Arnold way possible yells, Cohagen, give those people air. <laughs> someone could probably do a better Arnold impression than I can but as I've spoke of that is the most Arnold line from the movie that sounds like classic Arnold it was just like such a ridiculous oh, yeah. line or he delivered it in the most Arnold fashion possible and it is one of my favorite 
things to repeat. It's a famous internet meme. If you've seen it and you didn't know what it was from, here you go. Total recall. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Although now that you mentioned air supply, I kind of wish they would have been in the movie too. <laughs> I'm trying that to remember. I feel like it was a Jim Jeffries joke where he's like, um, I've come here to kick ass and make air supply references and i'm all out of love i'm so lost without you (laughs) (laughs) oh so many tangents i could go on from that but i'm gonna try and stay on track so another scene that comes to mind is the arm ripping off which we covered yep we covered the uh the exploding head disguise oh uh, in the very beginning of the movie, when he goes to visit Recall, do you guys remember the receptionist from Recall? Vaguely, uh, yeah. So she, she's a very yeah. bubbly, stereotypical receptionist um, that you're used to seeing in movies. But in the when they first show her, she's sitting at her desk and doing her nails. And one of the coolest things that I, is oh, another yeah. practical effect is she has some sort of like electric press on nails and she takes a color pen and she taps the pen to her nails and it instantly changes the color and finish of the nails. Mhm. Yeah, and, that was really cool. And I mean it's far far left from everything else we've discussed, but just as far as like science fiction goes, that's a really cool scene and a really cool effect in a movie. Oh yeah. So I think that covers all mine. Uh, anything from you guys that I'm missing? Those are kind of the main ones for me, too. I mean, Ar- yeah. Arnold has a lot of F-bombs that sound really, really forced. But other than that... <laughs> um... <laughs> I, I have one uh, thing that I came across. This isn't a scene or anything, but more kind of behind-the-scenes thing. Uh, so the team that wrote this movie adaptation from the short story they wrote this in the 70s now it didn't get made until 90 uh, or released until 90 because they were afraid that the visual effects that they had at the time weren't up to par with what they wanted to do with it so they wrote it and then decided to shelve it until they could find better practical effects and visual effects to be able to properly do what they wanted to do So, in the meantime, they wrote another movie that they wanted to do, and it ended up becoming one of the biggest, like, sci-fi thrillers of all time. Do you guys know what that movie was? Please be Alien. It was Alien. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I don't so know they why, actually, but I feel, always feel like I get an alien vibe from this movie, and I never knew yep. why. Yep. Yeah, the the two guys that wrote that movie also wrote this one, um, and that was the, the, the premise they went off of was they wanted basically a space monster film on a space shuttle, and so that was what they came up with. Huh. Yeah, so not, not bad to go from Alien to Total Recall. Heck yeah, no, no kidding. Wow. Um, some other quick, so immediately following this movie, Arnold Schwarzenegger became uh, part of George H.W. Bush's fitness council. So he literally <laughs> went from like the most adult movie of 1990 to starring <laughs> in all those after school specials about getting uh, fat kids like me to work out and exercise <laughs> and eat healthy. <laughs> like the presidential, what is that? The presidential fitness test or whatever. I I forget. It it was a special a fitness education council that was assembled by uh George H.W. Bush and it was headed by Arnold Schwarzenegger. But this is the movie that cemented him enough in American culture. I mean, at this point, I mean he was already popular, but this was like the movie that like cemented him as like the star. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. I mean, he had plenty of notable appearances before this, but this was the one that was like he became the action star your parents talked about, and not just, you know, the guy you went to go see with a date on Friday night. Right. Yeah. So, um, as far as other adaptations, uh, we talked about Re- Total Recall 2070, which I hope to see in the near future because it sounds really cool. But in 2012, they actually remade uh, Total Recall. And it was Colin Farrell, right, that played the main role? 
I like Correct. to call him as a phone booth guy, but yeah. Yeah. I always get called. So one of the other people I always get mixed up. I know we've talked about people I get mixed up in, in past episodes. Colin Farrell and Colin Firth. Um, not, not at all similar. <laughs> very different people. Yeah, not at all similar, but they get mixed up in my mind because they're similar names. <laughs> Best oh, wishes, yeah. signed Jeff Bridges. <laughs> uh, yeah, I uh, I still have yet to see the remake of it, and I'm curious as to how they approach the movie because it's obviously not going to be nearly as campy as the original version is. I would assume so. I always thought the movie bombed. I never heard any of my, you know, immediate circle of friends and family talk about it. So I always assumed that it was probably terrible. But in doing research for this, I found out it actually made a crap ton of money. Really? And there have been plenty of movies that, you know, were are generally regarded as not good or mostly hated by the public that made money. Batman versus Superman comes to mind. And yeah. I'm not looking to have a religious discussion here, so I won't go into details on that one. <laughs> but <laughs> Do you bleed? <laughs> I, 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 why did you say that name? <laughs> why did you say Martha? <laughs> I think that would be generally regarded as a movie that I would say that in pulp culture, most people hated, but it made a crap ton of money. Yeah. Fair enough. I can see that. Again, I, no religion, no politics. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of politics, I feel that the Colin Farrell version of Total Recall was much more focused on kind of that... Um, class structure and things like that then yeah where this movie was much more of an action flick like it felt more yes. like alien blade runner running man type movie where um as opposed to more of like an irobot type movie which is, i think is what the what the other total recall feels more like yeah it it certainly looks that way just from looking at like screen caps and stuff like that it certainly does look a lot more uh, like iRobotish. Yeah. 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 Big gulps. Big gulps. Heck yeah, big gulps. <laughs> Man, that uh, the remake actually has a pretty good cast. It's got Colin Farrell, Brian Cranston, Kate Beckinsale, Jessica Biel, Bill Nighy, uh, John Cho. I'm sure there's a few others in there, but that's a, quite the cast list at the top there. John Stamos's older brother, Richard Stamos. <laughs> I feel like if the remake was not a remake of one of my, you know, favorite childhood movies, I probably would have enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It just I just remember it having a very different feel. It doesn't feel the same, I don't know, gore and gravity to it. You know, no pun intended yeah. being on Mars, you know, but there are three well, boobs I'm, in that one too though. So Yeah, I'm but, sure they probably changed it up to make it feel more modern and less campy. I'm sure they wanted like a more serious action film with it, which is unfortunate because I think part of the charm of the first one was the campiness. Right. Well, I mean, if you're going to cast Colin Farrell instead of like Jason Statham or something like that, you know, um, you, yeah. know you, you have options to have made it that way to make it more like the Arnold version. And Yeah, that's true. So I think that it was a very conscious decision to make it more lack of a better term, conscious. So, yeah, but that makes it less enjoyable, in my opinion. So <laughs> 100% agreed. Yeah. All right. So I guess that wraps up our discussion on Total Recall. Now we are moving on to Nostalgia Coffee! Nostalgia Coffee! Yes, I have devised a trivia question for my co-host to answer. Whoever is closest will get to lead their chat next week. Adam has Are You Afraid of the Dark? And Brian has T.Y. Beanie Babies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Ty Beanie Babies. <laughs> Ty? I think so. Yeah. I just Ty. assumed because yep. they were capitalized that it was T.Y. I always pronounced it Ty. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Brian will clarify for us next week. I, I certainly will. <laughs> well, 
Maybe next week. We'll find. This is why we're here to find yeah. out. Yeah, in 2021, <laughs> I'm going to clarify as well as I do at this damn game. <laughs> All right, you guys ready? Yeah, let's do it. I, I am, but before we start, I always thought it was such a missed opportunity to not have a total recall live. <laughs> it would be it'd be TRL. Yeah, it'd be total recall, but with Carson Daly. You know, (laughs) or total request live, but you get to pick your own playlist and it gets implanted in your brain. Oh, dang. Mm. I like that. Yeah. See, I would actually watch that movie as opposed to Colin Farrell. (laughs) (laughs) Let's give Carson Daly some grenades and uh, access to my brain and see what happens. There you go. What about a total recall starring Colin Firth? Dennis Quaid and uh, <laughs> and Carson Daly and Michael Ironsides. You can't <laughs> replace Michael Ironsides. Yes, with, with I, old Ironsides, actually, it's just a big yeah. ship. <laughs> I I think diversity is an old wooden ship. <laughs> oh goodness! Anyway, on to my question. <laughs> I spoke heavily at the beginning of this episode about Philip K. Dick and that he wrote many short stories that have been adapted into movies and or TV shows. Speaking specifically of feature length films, how many short stories have or how many movies have been adapted from the works of Philip K. Dick? So would you count remakes? So like, for example, the remakes of Total Recall? Or is that considered one property? Let me count my list one moment. I counted them as one. Okay. I'm going to go with eight. Okay. I'm going to go with seven. Wow. That was very unexpected. (laughs) (laughs) Did I get it right? No. (laughs) The answer is 12 movies. If we split apart Total Recall with the remake, then it would be 13. And there are 23 total works if you count all the television adaptations. Wow. Holy butts. <laughs> so something I learned to be doing this too is The Man in the High Castle is a one of the few novels written by Philip K. Dick. Oh, interesting. Huh. Yeah. That's unfortunate because that show was a giant turd. <laughs> really? Or you could I've get heard, James uh, Franco to be the high man in the castle. That would be that'd be fun to watch. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I would watch both. I should say I only watched the first season, but the first season was awful. I hated it. I've heard very good things about it, but I have never watched it, so I can't speak to it. It was, uh, I will say, I enjoyed the lead up to the end of the first season, and then the end of the first season felt like a giant turd, and I stopped watching it. Fair. Well, uh, yes, so there we have it. Brian is the winner, and he will be guiding us through the topic of Thai Beanie Babies, or maybe T.Y. Beanie Babies, or Thinky Beanie Babies, or something like that next time. And I still have Are You Afraid of the Dark in my pocket, and now we will need to visit the Hopper of Imagination to get Paul a topic. Get on, get in the hopper! We want to remind all of our listeners that if there's a topic you'd like to hear us discuss, you can submit those at our website, www.datingourselvespodcast.com. All right, so the way this is going to work is I am going to have three different topics, each are from distinct categories. I will share those three categories with Paul. He'll let me know which one sounds best, and then I will let him know the associated topic from that category, and that will be his topic for a future episode. Sound good, Paul? Sounds good. All right, so your categories are food and beverage, celebrity, or shared life experience. I'm trying to remember the last shared life experience we did. Um, it may well, have been water parks. Concerts. That's true. We did concerts. It may have been water parks. I think okay. You're right. Um, yeah, because before that, I think it was hot lunch. Hot, lo- hot lunch. Hmm. Can I you hear can't... the other two choices again? <laughs> yes. Yes. Food and beverage and celebrity. 
I have no desire to talk about food and beverage after my gushers discussion. <laughs> that was a fun so, one. <laughs> it was a it was a fun one, but I, I it soured me on it for a little bit. <laughs> Sour gushers, they're a thing. <laughs> so I think I'm going to go with celebrity. All right, you have actor and stand-up comedian Chris Rock. Woohoo! Nice. Yeah. Awesome, awesome. So, uh, yeah, I think that kind of wraps up our show, guys. Be sure to check us out in two weeks when I'll be discussing Thai Beanie Babies or T.Y. Beanie Babies. As long as it's not K.Y. Beanie Babies, we should be good. Oh, uh, <laughs> and then in future... All right, episodes, I'm out again. <laughs> where, do you, where do you keep your Beanie Adam's Babies? going back to his flash drive. <laughs> be sure to check out future episodes when Paul will be discussing Chris Rock and Adam will be discussing Are You Afraid of the Dark? Thanks again for joining us on Dating Ourselves. And if you like what you heard, there's more to come. You can check us out at www.datingourselvespodcast.com to learn more about us in the show. And you can check out our Contact Us tab if you'd like to submit your own nostalgic topics. You can also send us submissions at datingourselvespodcast.aol.com. We've got mail. In addition to iTunes, you can also find us on TuneIn Radio, Google Music, and wherever podcasts are downloaded. Please be sure to like and subscribe so you don't miss any of the throwbackion. We post additional content on Facebook at facebook.com slash dating ourselves podcast. If you're on Instagram, you can find us at dating ourselves podcast. And we do the Twitter thing too at dated podcast. And remember, if you're too old for Snapchat and too young for life alert, you've just been dated. Bye guys. Later, Later. Taters. <laughs>